Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. If you could just tell us a bit about um, yourself, your background, and uh, then perhaps a little bit about what inspired you to to write your book, um, The Power of Teams. Yeah, thanks, Catherine. Um, so I'm a deputy head teacher of a Catholic secondary school in Surrey and also a director of education across our trust. Um, I've been in kind of leadership roles for a number of years now in schools and uh, love just love working in the education sector. And I suppose there was a few there was a few things that started pushing me towards uh, teams and high performing teams. And so it was almost like a perfect storm of things. There was um, I had been on lots and lots of leadership courses in a very short space of time, and I was getting a little bit um, of leadership fatigue from mm-hmm. those very individual centric courses where they just focus on one person, um, and just felt like I'd, I was kind of getting a bit fed up with that, and I wanted to explore something different. Um, and I'm a big sports fan, so I was just naturally reading books about sports teams and and what helped them kind of hinge together. And I just thought, oh, there must be there must be more out there that we can learn about in education from these interesting, quite extreme and obviously elite sort of sports and other workplaces. And just started reading and researching and, and just got the bug, really. Um, and I think finally, I just could see how many education fads have come in and out over the years that demand quite a lot of staff time. Like we're now we've now got to put thousands of hours collectively into this new thing that's the big thing at the moment and i really wanted to to try and contribute towards an improvement area in workplaces that didn't take time and resources out of schools because i really believe that we already meet in teams we're all part of teams and mm-hmm. and we just there's just more we can find out about it so i think it's an area you can invest in and it, and it doesn't add extra time or extra money, but, but you get a lot back from it. Um, so that, that's, the, that's what took me down the path, really. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And that comes across in your book, because as I was reading it, I was really thinking how much um, benefit teams could get out from actually having, uh, um, you call them protocols in your book, um, just sort of certain systems that they could put into place, which would mean that when you do meet, there's hopefully a re- much of much reduction in people feeling that it could have been an email, for example. And you talk quite a lot about that. Um, I wonder if I could sort of, I've, I've, as I've read it, I've picked out a few themes. Um, that I felt really resonated with me. And if it's okay with you, it'd be quite nice, I think, just to have a bit of a chat about them. And then you can maybe expand on those thoughts and give us some practical tips, because I know that teachers listening will be really keen to think, okay, this is brilliant, but how can I actually put it into action in my context? Um, So if it's all right with you, Sam, I'd like to start off with this concept that you mentioned quite early on of psychological safety. 
What, what is that? And why do you think it's such an essential um, state to underpin effective team dynamics? Yeah, thanks for asking about that one. I mean, that's right at the start of my book and, and, and in the model I've created, it kind of, like you said, underpins everything. Um, so psychological safety, I'll try and do the really quick version of this, um, <laughs> is a concept that wasn't um, necessarily pioneered by Dr. Amy Edmondson because the term exists before her work, but she really popularised it. Um, and if I just kind of regale the anecdote briefly that, that kind of came about for yeah. her to discover it, she she was a researcher and was called to uh, look at um, why certain hospital medical teams were performing well or not well in America. Um, and they rankled the effectiveness of all these hospital teams. And what they realised was that the teams that were the most successful at achieving their, their outcomes, whatever their outcomes were, you know, clearing patients off, off the desk or whatever, um, mm -hmm. they were reporting the highest number of mistakes and the, the lowest performing teams were reporting the lowest number of mistakes, which obviously on the surface confounds logic. So at that point, they asked her to start talking to the teams. And upon interviewing them, she found that the highest performing teams were the ones who owned their mistakes, talked about the mistakes, um, normalized mistakes as a, you know, an everyday learning process and therefore nothing to worry about. Whereas the lowest performing teams reported the lowest number of mistakes because there was a culture of fear and a lack of trust. And obviously they were making more mistakes. They just didn't ever re report them into the entire mm. So anyway, she, she kind of took that idea and, and basically said that the best teams are safe to fail. Um, they have an open culture of dialogue and uh, fundamentally they use this state to create really ambitious aims for their team. Um, and that's where I think sometimes psychological safety gets slightly misconstrued because it sounds like a really lovely, warm yes. vibe, doesn't it? And I think some people have mistaken psychological safety for like, hey, guys, we all just look after each other here and, and we don't really need to get much else done mm -hmm. if, we're, if we're being really nice and warm. But actually, she's very clear in her book, The Fearless Organisation, that you create the open culture and the safety and the warmth so that you can push each other to be the best you possibly can be. Mm. Um, and that's that's um, that's the fundamental part of it. And those teams, there's a huge body of research from across many sectors, which shows that those teams outperform teams that are not psychologically safe. No, it's, it's really interesting because it links what you've just said there to another concept which you discuss in your book, which is radical candor. Mm. And um, I think that's so important, isn't it? Because, you know, what, 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 what Amy Edmonton's saying about, um, about this is how you've got these teams who, oh, just sorry, losing my train of thought there. Who, who kind of hide their mistakes, who don't um, admit to their mistakes and who really worry about it. But actually what we, what we want is to catch these mistakes early. And in order to do that, you have to be able to have quite direct conversations with people. But so, so could you say a little bit more about radical candor and, and what that means? Yeah, it's interesting, actually. Radical candor, I kind of, um, I, I blow hot and cold with this one a bit because radical candor is an yeah. awesome book by Kim Scott where she talks mm. about what we tend to do when we're trying to deliver honest appraisal of, of ourselves and others in our workplace and that we, we fall into certain pitfalls along the way. So, for example, we tend to um, quite a lot of the time be overly empathetic towards people because we're worried about hurting their feelings and therefore we, mm. we don't always give them the, the honest um, 
feedback they might be looking for or need um and then on other areas of her kind of quadrant um some people are overly obnoxious with their feedback and, and very blunt and direct and the kind of she calls the sweet spot radical candor where you look after people you create safety but you also give them direct feedback but i guess the the book is almost packaged as like something for the individual to do um and the more mm -hmm. i think about it the more you can't really go around honing your radical candor skills in a team where there's no culture of open feedback and dialogue because otherwise you sort of stick out like a sore thumb so um i almost think the team has to build a, a climate of psychological safety and openness before you can start practicing those areas of radical candor yeah, you can't you can't be sitting people down. So I just I just wanted to meet with you to tell you how dreadful I think you are and how much your lesson was an awful disaster area. Um, but you know, I just mean it because I want to help you. That's not not what we want to be doing, is it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and and what I might just add as well is that in your book, as well as these um, chapters where you take us through the the vision and the the underpinning and the theory, and every chapter I should say does start with a very clear summary of the research. So it's all very clearly underpinned with, with evidence. But you also have this wonderful section at the back, which is uh, the FAQs, because you've met with a lot of teachers, haven't you, over the years. And I know that what you've tried to achieve is to kind of give a summary of the kind of advice that you've given to the kinds of questions that people have asked you in practical terms about this. So I just wanted to, to sort of pull out one of those, if that's okay, mm. from the FAQs, which is the advice that you have for teachers who feel that there, there isn't a state of psychological safety across their department. Let's say you've just come to a new school and you know you've realized that there's a bit of an underculture of blame going on and people are hiding their mistakes and things like that are going on but you're you know you've just read your book and you want to really lead your team in a, in a different direction how would you advise a teacher under those circumstances to proceed because i think we can all imagine that scenario yeah it's obviously difficult to give amazing advice without the context of the of the of the kind of department or school because some schools have mm. really great coaching cultures where that that teacher might have a coach that's not part of their normal department who they can kind of feed stuff back to and, and kind of chew chew things through with so that we certainly have that in my school so that someone coming in could do that um so firstly i suppose that step one would be to work out what are the avenues you have to feed things back and to and to pass on concerns and is it really clear to you or not so that could be your coach it could be your head of department another line manager a mentor that you've been given or, or whatever um but i think I'm a, I'm a really big believer in everyone being part of the solution and um mm. you know i i 100 believe in uh leadership and leaders setting a compelling direction for people to, to kind of um unite behind but i'm also a big believer in, and you'll know from reading the book that um I think everyone in the team has a role to play in improving the team. So I, I would very much encourage um, the said person to try to speak to their, their head of department and try to contribute to something and, and, and talk about ways that they can foster discussion. Um, and I think sometimes leaders sometimes are worried about feedback and, and participation from their team because it could um deviate from where they think the team is going or it could cause them more work or it could they might think it's undermining their position and um, but mm. i think if you go to your leader with with a kind of hey i'd really like us if we could explore this and 
and and I'll run through it with you in advance as the leader so you kind of know where I'm going to take this conversation and then dot 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 and you kind of create that kind of safety between both of you um and then you're not just kind of pulling out the rabbit out of the hat mid-meeting with something that's going to surprise the leader because if they're if they're not already predisposed to this kind of climate then that's only going to shock them and, and kind of throw them off guard anyway um so so that i mean that would be without any context that'd be one one thing that i that i might recommend no of course that's really helpful and i think that's a really important point actually because i think there's a lot of a move in education recently for people to look for a silver bullet that you can just like parachute some strategy in and you know we've got this we do we're a, we're a we're a sam coombs team school now we do this but actually i think context is so important and what you offer is a is a practical guide that that a team would need to, or a school would need to sort of take away, digest, sit with, and and co-create into their context. Would you agree that that's um, what you're aiming for? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the first kind of 200 and something pages of the book are um, what I found to be the most kind of high researched areas of, of teamwork. Um, and then mm. each of those chapters has exactly the same structure. And it was really important to me to include research from other sectors because I know some some could argue that like the more domain specific stuff we have, the better. Um, but I've learned so much from, from reading about other sectors and and then trying to assimilate that into my own workplace. I really wanted there to be lots of stuff from other place, workplaces and parts of the world. Um, so every chapter starts with some research from, from other sectors and then it goes into schools and looks at some schools research and then finally some more practical guides of school leaders. Um, so I've tried to help kind of broaden people's horizons with some interesting research and anecdotes and then go go turn back down to what's in front of us, which is school teams and school leadership. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point because, you know, for a variety of reasons, we can be in education. We, we can be a, a bit nose to the grindstone because it's very full on. And it's um, not that people perhaps don't want to expand their horizons, but they feel that they, they don't have the, the time or the capacity. Um, and that point that you just made um, about learning from other industries, I thought was really interesting. I was listening to a podcast the other day and it was about a surgeon and he had had a conversation with somebody who was a puppeteer. And you wouldn't think those would have anything in common, but what he said is that, after talking to this puppeteer she was saying oh yes and no I you know when I'm going to perform do some puppetry I, I do a good two-hour wa- uh, workout with my fingers to warm them up and he was thinking crikey I don't do that and I'm gonna do uh, uh, somebody's operation and it, it he was just saying how much it made him think so I mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. it's so valuable isn't it to to have this cross-pollination of ideas absolutely and and, um, and one thing I quote all the time is um the evidence-based education uh, school environment and leadership review which came out in autumn 2022 and Mm. what they're finding is that a lot of these other sector ideas on um, psychological safety and trust towards leadership are now really pervading the education sector we're we're building up more not loads but more robust research about some of these things in, in education so it's definitely proliferating into our sector as well. Yeah, no, that, that's really interesting. Thank you. And 
I was just thinking one one phrase really resonated with me as I was reading through this section, and it was about um, the decision making power of the team leader. OK, and in one of your sections, I think it was one of the case studies that you include um, this lovely phrase, I thought was you've got to develop a flat hierarchy of ideas even if the leader has the final say. Um, why do you think that's so important in successful teams? Yeah, can I just say, first of all, I, my, the case studies in this book are way better than my side. <laughs> I'm, honestly, they're so good. I've got so many great people like Scott Fletcher, um, Doug Lamov, um, Tom Sherrington, Jade Pierce. But honestly, I, I, I would genuinely pay for the book just based on the case studies from other people lee hills is amazing um they were just all fantastic but yeah to answer your question one of the phrases i quote in the book is from um dr Calvan Atwell, who wrote the thinking school um mm. and i've been to his school in um in essex and it's just awesome primary school and he said to me that day and i write it in the book that without autonomy you leave your brain at home and when mm. you go into work every day and you know no one's going to ask you what you think or to contribute any ideas or to share your expertise, after a while, you just stop even bringing ideas to you, even your own head. You just think, well, no one, you, no one's ever going to ask me or, or listen to me. So I just you stop thinking about anything apart from what you absolutely have to do as part of your core job. Um, mm. And that's always stayed with me when you give people room to think and to breathe and to contribute and to have the autonomy to do that. They, they they begin constantly thinking, constantly bringing stuff um, that could be to the benefit of the team or the organisation. So, and then go back to go back to your question. Um, you know, if you're going to gather a group of people together to share ideas and to talk about the way that something can move forward, then you have to have that kind of flat hierarchy of everyone is an equal contributor to this discussion. Um, otherwise, why bother getting those people together? Everyone brings knowledge and experience. So, I find it infuriating when I see teams where um, people don't get to share their ideas or and if they're not very good at that because they haven't got the culture of that, then there are structures and things you can put into meetings to give everyone mm. a voice. But um, what, what a terrible waste of everyone's time to come to a meeting room where they're never actually consulted or get to share what they're really good at, what they know something about, what they're passionate about. Um, that's uh, that's kind of, a, you know, one of the toxic yeah. aspects of teams, I think. Because we get we we want to sort of harness the wisdom of the group, don't we? Which is much greater than some of its parts often. Um, so, and, and I really like what you say as well. From my own research, I'm sort of looking at CPD and things like that in schools, and I've really come to believe quite strongly that autonomy is facilitated by structure in mm. a way, mm. so that you know the protocols you suggest um, do support allowing the space for the quiet voices and the the, the you know the, the shy people who maybe don't feel confident to contribute because it puts into place a protocol and um, I wonder if you could just say a little bit about the protocols actually um, that that you refer to that you how you might structure these meetings to to invite those voices in yeah well one of them is is a very similar thing that both Andy Buck, another great, great guy and contributor to the book, and Doug Lamov both, um, both write about. Um, Andy Buck calls it Cabrio. And it's just a really simple thing. And you guys listening might have tried this before with your teams. And that's someone comes to the meeting with something they want to discuss. So it could be a challenge. Uh, it could be something that's been on their mind. They want to improve an area with. 
And that person doesn't have to be the team leader, but that person is chairing this conversation and they spend a couple of minutes outlining the thing that they're thinking about, the thing they want some help with. Then everyone in the room gets like, I don't know, two minutes of thinking time to think through, oh yeah, what, what is that challenge all about? And how, what would I do? What, what kind of solutions would I offer? And then after that, everyone gets kind of one minute to outline some of their thoughts. But the rule is you're not allowed to interrupt, um, you know, either to agree or disagree with anyone else's point at that stage of the meeting. And you're not allowed to refer to anyone else's points that have gone before you. So essentially, the, the person chairing that discussion can hear from all of the different views in the room without any kind of tainted um, or, you know, uh, overlap discussion. And then they could start chairing a more open discussion about it afterwards if they wish. So it's, it's basically putting in place a structure that, that a healthy team would already do anyway. Um, mm. But it, 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 it can be really, really uh, useful. And some people have said to me when I've talked about that method, oh, what do you do about the people that really, really don't like contributing in front of the rest of the team? And there's, you know, go and talk to them before the meeting, tell them you're going to bring this up, ask them to think about it in advance, kind of reassure them that their initial thoughts on it are really, really credible and going to be really welcomed by the group. Um, mm. Follow up afterwards and, and give them a bit, of, uh, bit of feedback about their contribution in the meeting and kind of not everything has to happen in that in that one meeting like you can lots of one-to-one -one conversations before and after the meetings help kind of people feel their place of belonging in that team so yeah that's just one that's just one kind of structure you could use to, to facilitate good discussion oh that's really really helpful thank you and actually as you're speaking it's just reminding me of the kinds of things that we might do in our own classrooms in our practice to you know perhaps do a bit of think pair share or turn and talk or, or whatever you choose to call it and you listen in and then you um, invite someone to speak because you've heard they've got a really good idea and actually i think i think we do well to remember that you know adults aren't so different you know we all have moments of unconfidence or or whatever it is and i think actually to to scaffold these meetings is is a really positive thing to do um, yeah. Sorry, uh, just to uh, just to, to bring bring us on to sort of the next little bit, um, which links to this, of course, um, is when you're looking at the FAQs in terms of the admin side of the meeting um, that you, you've just described. When you've got people in there who do have a loud voice and do want to say, you mentioned something quite interesting um, in the book, which is that a person. By, by doing this protocol, a person might come to realise that even though they assumed everyone would agree with them, it is not the case that everyone agrees with them. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that. Well, I guess some some people just naturally um, talk more than others, and some people naturally feel more confident to give their views than others. And in sort of more dysfunctional teams, they will just carry on doing that forevermore and they might not even be aware that they're a dominant voice in the room and they might not be aware that other people don't contribute because of their you know automatic contributions and so i actually think i don't i don't blame those people who are like that if anything it just highlights again the sort of slight dysfunction of that team where they've been allowed to grandstand so many times um, and therefore other people in the room just kind of give up, give up after a while. So I think it's perfectly legitimate for a leader, especially if they're looking to sort of turn the corner with the culture of their team meetings, 
to talk to that person and say, look, you are such a passionate person and part of this team. I, I'm so grateful for your contributions all the time because you always give the very, you know, as much as you can to all of us. But we're trying something else in the team at the moment where we want to bring in as many voices as possible. And we're going to try this and we're going to try this. Um, what do you think about that? You know, ask them some questions about how they feel about that. Um, and then, you know, give them some feedback afterwards and just say, look, I can really appreciate that in that last meeting, you you listened so, so well and you really engaged with people after they'd spoken. I just really appreciate you doing that. So I think um, sometimes those people are seen as kind of the enemy, but actually they're probably just a little bit um, enthusiastic and probably haven't been part of a really healthy uh, kind of team culture before. So um, I think you can kind of get them back onto the straight and narrow. So you're yeah. still utilising their strengths, but also bringing other people in as well. And of course, some people find the silence uncomfortable as well, don't they? So, I mean, we've all been in uh, in breakout rooms on on um, online platforms and sometimes you're sat there and it's just like tumbleweed. So I think there are there's a certain group of people who will just fill a silence, aren't there? Yeah, yeah. And all, all power to them as well. Um, <laughs> and and, then that, and, that, and sometimes that's great. I think I am. Um, I learned to respect the silence when I learned how to coach. Um, mm. And that was really powerful for me, actually, not having to feel fill the void all the time and that actually time for quiet and thinking is is just as valuable as as a uh, as noise <laughs> no I, I i agree with you and perhaps need to to uh, have a bit of self-reflection on that point um <laughs> but i just wondered as well because when you're when you're thinking about um team meetings as we've been discussing one of the things you suggest is that and, and you slightly alluded to this a moment ago is that the leader isn't the facilitator and that actually that's a separate role could you explain a little bit about why you why you suggest that that might be something that people might try well i guess well, we'll probably come to talk about this later on but i guess the, the reason that i think teams work really well is because they should be everyone in the team should be learning all the time and growing all the time and one way that you learn and you grow is when you you take on little bits of responsibility and 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 that sort of thing so um, there are loads of ways to do this, but whether you have a rotating chair for your team meetings, whether you um, constantly have a rotor of people that are going to present or feedback on things and therefore they lead that section of the meeting, you know, all of us have to learn and all of us have stuff we don't know about. So I like sitting in a lot of my meetings where I'm, yes, maybe the team leader in name, sitting in amongst everyone else and learning from someone else on the team share something they've been working on or share some expertise that they just acquired or or, or whatever and then there that person is facilitating the meeting they're not me I'm, I'm just one of the team after that learning with the rest of them um like even this friday I, I, my pastoral team which is about 15 people we have a rotor and people sign up to the rotor about what they're going to share and that starts every single meeting we do um and my head of year 12 she's presenting on a book that she's read recently which we we paid for because we buy books for our our team so they can present back and we can all learn together so i won't be leading that part of the meeting or even maybe mm. the whole meeting she'll she'll do all of that um and i'm just part of the team learning and asking questions and and i think that that fosters a really healthy culture of like hey we're all we're all growing together um and when we do come to talk about team processes i I will ultimately kind of help steer the direction and and some of the the final decisions, but but everyone everyone is involved in uh, up to that point really, and 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 some people might facilitate things they're particularly passionate about. So, um, does that does that kind of answer the question? Yeah, no, it's I think it was. Uh 
something as well to do with you know how if you're managing the protocols then you're that's your cognitive load isn't it and you're taking up your time and your headspace with remembering how to the protocols of running the meeting especially if you're trying this out and you haven't really um, used it very much before and actually how a facilitator can release up that cognitive load um, for the learning as you describe um, so yeah I think it's it's one of these things it's not and I was going to come on to this a bit later, but actually, I think it's quite an interesting thing to come on to now. These things are not accidental, are they? And I know that some people perhaps would say, well, why do I need to? I've been going to meetings for years. Why do I need to go to these meetings and be told how to run a meeting? I'm an adult and all the rest of it. These are natural um, social behaviours or whatever. And and I wonder, you know, why why is it do you think that we need this pointing out and i do think that we do yeah i guess um i guess if you've been leading a team and you're you know you're comfortable with the people that you lead and work with and that kind of thing you might fall into the habit potentially of not really planning your meetings in that much depth and you know everyone's going to turn up uh, with their cup of tea and we're going to do this this and this and you know we might get half an hour of decent work done in the hour slot we have, or I might let people go early because we've covered everything, or I might just run through the current to-do list for the team because that's an easy thing to do, isn't it? You don't need, really need to plan that. If you're if you're the head of English, and I, I was for a while, and your line manager's giving you a list of dates and jobs, then you might just be like, right, I'll just use that as my team meeting uh, later on. And that's such an easy thing to fall into. Um, so I think, like you said, it's very to run a, to plan and run a really good meeting is a very deliberate and actually takes a lot of time like i think about planning my team meetings like i would planning a lesson there's a lot at stake i want to make sure that everyone engaged everyone's learning everyone gets something from being there there's a good climate and you can't just rock up to the meeting um with a to-do list and, and, and enact that you have to really plan in advance um so so it's a very deliberate thing to do and it's time consuming as well as a leader to to make sure your meetings are absolutely rocking but 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 you have to do that because you want people to turn up to the meetings knowing that good stuff is going to happen and, and good mm. work is going to be done as a group and that doesn't happen by accident um when you haven't really planned or thought about what how you're going to use that time so do you think that um sort of obviously we're social animals do you think that you you are honing a natural kind of capacity that we have or do you think that actually there are there are things that we do need to learn to do as, as a skill i think we all enjoy going and hanging out with people who are like-minded and who do similar work to us so i think we're naturally as you said sort of social beings we all want to belong we all like to be part of something bigger than ourselves mm. but we're also very very time pressured and we come to the meeting with a lot of baggage i.e oh, I've got this many essays to mark later on, oh, I've got to call those two parents, they can be a bit tricky. So you, you come to the meeting with quite a lot going on in your head. So yeah. feeling good about being social with other adults is not enough to make you feel like that's a good use of your time when you're in such a high pressure job. So you, you want to go to the meeting knowing, oh, the last three meetings I've been in here, yeah, we got to hang out, but we also did this, this and this, and then it translated to this action afterwards. And we get really good stuff done together. Um, so the social element on its own is not enough to convince people that you're a team who does great work. Um, so you have to have the kind of combination of the two. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. And as I say, I, I really am quite a firm believer that structure kind of promotes auto autonomy in, in some ways. But I just want to address um, the kind of the, the to-do list element of all of this, because again, linking to your FAQ section of the book, um, how would you suggest people do manage the admin because there is admin obviously that people have to get through and i was reading a, a paper a while ago and it it studied um a particular school and how they'd run their meetings and they observed that they had an hours meeting and they spent the first 45 minutes just doing the admin stuff and actually they finally got round to something a debate about something pedagogical and then everyone had to go home after 10 minutes mm -hmm. into that really interesting bit that was the bit that was probably the most valuable so how do you how do you advise um team leaders and team members to stop that admin overwhelming the the productive stuff yeah i mean obviously admin admin and logistical things are important because there's there's lots of things that just have to happen that have to be done i guess the first test is um is this admin complex enough that it needs to be discussed out loud um and therefore warrants meeting time or is it something that people can digest themselves and, and understand without any any verbal input um so one thing that i do is um i send out my uh team bulletin um on a thursday afternoon which which we agreed as a team we would do uh, mm. for the following monday um but i meet this particular team it's the team i was talking about earlier on on a friday morning when we, again we decided to do that it's not calendared we decided to meet up on a friday morning um so it's kind of voluntary from their point of view but i i include both administrative items and more learning items on the bulletin i sent on the day before and then it's the, during the meeting on the friday go right everyone's read that now was there any parts of the admin stuff that you weren't sure about i need to quickly clarify and they might go oh what was the point in us doing dot dot dot, dot? and it might be like a 30 second you know quick mm, like mm. i respond to their query but otherwise i assume um and what they deliver so it's not just an assumption i assume mm. that they understand what i've written because i've written it clearly and simply and and, and then we spend the meeting time doing more discussion based or learning based things um and um, so obviously admin does to summarize admin does have a role and you have to be really clear about what you expect from people um but at the same time there's no reason that should be the dominant part of your meeting and uh i can understand why people slip into that habit but but i think you've got to do everything you can as a leader to make sure it doesn't become the dominant overriding part of your meeting time no that's that's really interesting and helpful thank you and i it kind of links into another part of of the book which is sort of the contracting you know and and you mentioned there about how you've already kind of had a had a meeting to plan um about how you're going to communicate with each other so there will be a, an email prior there will be a particular way that the meeting is done um how would you advise a teacher who's who's new to leading a particular team who wants to kind of get all of that contracting done so everyone agrees how they are going to be communicated with um be it through a prior um agenda or um little one-to-one -one check ins how would you go about setting that side of things up well if i'm taking over a new team then i like to meet everyone beforehand anyway one-to-one -one and go right what's working well in this team what's not working so well in this team uh how would you like to develop what can i do to support you developing this year 
dot, 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 and kind of basically try and find out an objective lie of the land for that, that particular team. Um, and that normally unearths a few of those things there. Um, and then say, look, I think the best way for us to all stay up to date with what's going on is if we do this, what do you think? And then and then create a discussion for that. Um, and it, you know, it doesn't take very long to ask a group of people how and when they like to be communicated with mm. uh, and what things they feel like they're lacking at the moment in terms of resources or, or communication and, and how we can address that. Um, and then once you've agreed it as a group and you kind of set that direction, then, then everyone, and obviously you review it every now and again as well. So I still ask my team if they're happy with the 4.30 bulletin on a Thursday and if they're happy with the meeting that we all do voluntarily on a Friday and and it's uh well I do buy pastries for that meeting but it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's still a resounding yes but, but they know that I ask and therefore I think that means they feel more able to give me feedback along the way because they know I regularly regularly ask anyway um so I don't think it takes all that long just to establish some of those things and then keep evaluating them yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I guess, going back to the earlier point about natural social behaviours, I think it seems when you when you articulate it, it seems like such a good idea. Uh, but I bet we've all been to meetings where we don't feel that that's happened. Um, so I, I think it's really valuable to make it really explicit so that we can really see how almost these sort of micro behaviours, micro affirmations, and so on are so setting the scene for actually building a really productive and effective team yeah absolutely and on that if we're going to be productive and effective we've got to know where we're going and so I want to just talk to you a little bit about vision um how have you seen you know specifically the the effective communication of vision which you know is not always something that happens how have you seen it done really well? Well, I think, um, firstly, the vision is like one of the, you know, the whole sort of foundations of the team, isn't it? Like, where are we now? Where are we going? How do we get there? Um, otherwise, you kind of go, you fall into that sort of zombie sleepwalking. Um, you know, I've, I've been in, in teams, in departments before where they just, you just turn up, teach your lessons, uh, I'm secondary, so in, in June and July, you tweak some schemes of work every year and shove some different starters in there, uh, mm-hmm. and then and then you go again the next year. And you're just sort of sleepwalking along because there's no vision to be anything other than just a group of people who teach lessons and tweak schemes of work. Um, so I, those I, I kind of look back on those days with like kind of utter horror now, to be honest. Um, so yeah, I think firstly the. The leader has to have some sort of vision for what they want from the team. Um, of course, I really believe in wondering and asking what the team think that their vision is for themselves and for the group as well, and kind of almost helping to kind of co-create that um, that vision so that everyone has that shared belief and that shared buy-in from, from the get-go. Um, I think what I've seen over the years is that lots of schools and lots of team leaders are really great at whipping out the vision talk on the inset day in the start of the year and Mm -hmm. you know here's my new brand of powerpoint here's our new team motto for this year this is the vision and everyone's like yeah that sounds awesome and then like (laughs) you know like six weeks go by and there's no mention of it again and then 12 weeks go by and no one could even now now no one can even recall what it was even if you ask them so i think Mm. that that's what the problem that i see is not so much 
the lack of vision at the start. It's the fact that the vision doesn't part play a part of the lived experience after its initial launch, and then and then you know that gain time comes around and the team leader's like, oh, right, but I think of my next year's motto for the white vision for the team again. Um, and it doesn't build on anything. So again, I'm being a little bit um, hyperbolic there, but but that does happen all the time. And, and when you say, oh, what's your kind of vision for the team this year? What are you guys really like working? What are you really, you know, striving towards? And, and people go, oh, what was that thing we said at Inset? You know, and that's the kind of reaction that you get quite a lot of the time. Um, yeah. So I think good vision is vision that is part of the everyday and it's constantly referred back to and built upon and not just kind of once a year, twice a year kind of wheeled out in a, in a presentation. Now that's, that's really interesting. And I kind of want to follow that up with a question about a sort of explicit and implicit cultural um, narratives, I guess. And, you know, you're talking about making a cultural narrative that re is really explicit and really clear and co-creative and all, and all that's brilliant. But here's the question how do you or what could a leader do to just check that the expectation matches the the reality um how do you check whether everything you you want to do reflects or is consistent with what's actually going on well that is a biggie isn't it <laughs> <laughs> Sam, I'm going to give you a second before you answer that to consider your, your thoughts and just interrupt quickly, just to remind you that if you want to get hold of Sam's book, The Power of Teams, uh, and any other John Cat publications, our discount is still available for you. We've had this for a while now, um, but it's still there for you to make use of, and it is JCTTR2324, and you can use that across the whole range of John Cat publications. So please do go and take a look and pick up Sam's book along the way. I certainly am um, contemplating my own my own copy. So uh, yeah, if you want to after the show or during the show while you're listening, there is a, uh, a tweet at the top of the page, at the top of the space rather, and uh, that will guide you to the website so you can go and have a look for Sam's book and all of the others. Sorry, Catherine, back to you. And Sam, no. I hope that gave you a moment to, to have a think about your answer. You're, you're very welcome. Please, thank you for, for getting that in there, Lucy. And, and Sam, yes, yeah, sorry, I've thrown you a big, massive question there. Um, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess um, I'll, I'll start talking. Then, if I've gone off on a complete tangent, then just um, just tell me shut up. Um, <laughs> but I'm not a big. Um, I'm not one of those kind of clipboard style leaders that goes around like reacting to outcomes and going, "Well, that outcome must mean that we're not doing X, Y, Z." Mm -hmm. um, I'm not really a big kind of outcome as a. I don't like to react to outcomes. I like to consider and evaluate processes. Um, and I love that phrase from the uh, kind of NFL legendary coach. Um, his book was The Score Takes Care of Itself, um, mm. which obviously like, that can sound a little bit utopian and pie in the sky, but I genuinely believe 90% um, of that. I mean, this might overlap if we talk about debriefing later on. Yes. Um, but that for me, and actually, if, 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 you, if someone was to ask me what was, my, what was the most interesting piece of research I found while I was re, you know, looking at this, the research for this book, it was this massive plethora of evidence about teams who debrief and how much more effective they are than teams that don't. Mm -hmm. And debriefing is like the academic-y kind of word for teams that review and evaluate a lot. Um, and there's a huge body of research um, from organizations like the military and hospitals and medical teams about how they regularly debrief. 
and it's so interesting and really cool and um i find that a lot of teams don't necessarily follow some of these really evidence-informed approaches to debriefing um mm. so the teams that tend to perform the best are the teams that have a very normalized culture of reviewing how things are going before an outcome comes along and they have this sort of knee-jerk reaction i.e oh this is going great no action needed or oh this is going terribly quick let's let's do something and change something so um a few fundamental processes of debriefing to be really really effective are one if you launch something or start something like a new vision like a new project or initiative at that point the launch you pencil in a few dates where you're going to review the processes so that when you do have a debriefing discussion as a team they are pre-planned into the diary and it's not a response to something that was happening good or bad um mm. so that's that's the first thing and the second thing is that you um obviously have hopefully now by this point curated a lovely culture of psychological safety where there's open dialogue but this regular debriefing means that the whole team are contributing to your um your oversight of how things are going so it's not the leader walking around with the clipboard going well this is happening here and this is happening here and probably not getting the full perspective on things yeah but you're using debriefing um as part of your meeting time to really discuss and understand what's going on in in, in the team um and working alongside that is um I'm a big proponent of regular surveying as well. Um, little and often surveys to your team every couple of weeks, which is a couple of targeted questions about something in particular um, mm. and sharing the results with your team in a meeting, in a discussion for full transparency so that you can show them that you're you know, humble enough to both ask for participation and then to showcase it and, and act on it and, and take it on the chin uh, as well. So um, I can't remember what the question was there, Catherine, but, <laughs> but, it, but it all comes back uh, it, to debrief. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it was it was about how you kind of check in and find out whether or not you've kind of got any um, sort of assumed or unspoken sort of cultural norms that that are just sort of sitting under the surface. And I'll, I'll explain just what I mean. So I was reading um, something, and it basically said people went into a meeting and they um had the meeting and then they left and whatever the ceo had said they sort of turned to each other in the corridor and said oh well actually everybody knows you don't really do that he's just told us to do this but we all know it doesn't really work like that and and it's i, I guess what you're saying about debriefs is that if you have those planned in and as you say pencil them in so they're not reactive um is, is what you're saying that that kind of helps to unearth those kinds of things make them make people comfortable to talk about them helps you detect them yeah because it's, it's not just that those tools get give you feedback it's that even by going through that process you are constantly showing the team that it's cool to give feedback and you're not going to be wrapped on the wrist for giving mm. your leader feedback your, your leader is asking for feedback regularly responding to it in a humble um and kind of personable way and then actually acting on it because uh the worst thing what you just described is awful because they had a post-meeting meeting they clearly <laughs> didn't feel like the ceo was someone they could give feedback to so they just get feedback to each other about it and that nothing will ever change there 
So that team is doomed to perpetual kind of ineffectiveness because no one's prepared to give the leader the feedback they need. So yes, there are structures like debriefing process and surveys, which will unearth really great data um, for you. But even better than that, you're basically showing you're the kind of person that wants feedback and will engage with it. And then you're much more likely to get day-to-day on-the-ground feedback informally and formally. So you can actually Mm. do something with it. Um, I I would be, I mean, you can't stop people saying things about you. So I'm sure people complain about me all the time, but I'd be mortified if people didn't feel like they could bring something to me that wasn't going well in in the team's work that's like for me that's the worst part of team dysfunction Mm. yeah and I think it's it's a really interesting point that you make about how you sort of in in the book you talk about how a leader needs to model that kind of behavior so that other people can see how to you know you know almost it's not to invite a criticism but it's almost to say look you know I've received a criticism and this is how I dealt with it and and show show you taking it on the chin and being constructive with it as a model to others Um, yeah exactly And, and I think the mistake some people make is that they just ask they just um ask a question and expect people to immediately give them feedback but the the small difference to that can be right everybody recently i've tried to do this this and this i don't think it's really working and i think i've made a couple of issues with the way i've rolled this out can anyone help me and give me some advice on how we could steer this in a better direction because immediately you're kind of accepting a bit of culpability you're being vulnerable about something you tried and it didn't work you're asking for help and support um and and showing that kind of like i said vulnerability and humility so even that will help unearth i think more honest uh discussion from your team than just going well this isn't working very well what should we do um so yeah yeah it's it's so interesting and and another thing that you mention um is we don't want that descent into blame do we um Mm. how how do you guard against that because with, you know whether we like it or not we are in a very high stakes kind of system we are dealing with children's futures we are um you know subject to Ofsted inspectors um and and those kinds of things so how do you in a in a highly high high stakes accountability context which we have been for a long time in education how do you prevent or guard against the descent into blame cultures i guess hopefully everyone knows this already so maybe it's not maybe when we do blame it's not a rational logical thing but i think everyone knows that blaming people has has no impact on on the next step it has no impact on improvement does it when you blame someone and make them feel frankly shit about something they've done that that has no impact on on future growth so that there are there are ways of exploring um, mistakes or um, suboptimal bits of work which don't involve mm. blame and certainly don't involve public blame, um, and I think that's you know Amy Edmondson's just written a book literally about failure um, mm. for the right kind of wrong, and I'm only like a quarter of the way through it at the moment because um, I've just read Middle March, which was much longer than I thought it was <laughs> when I started. Um, so I just haven't haven't got very far with the right kind of wrong yet, but she basically talks. It's very about good. How... I'm I'm reading that as well, actually. <laughs> it's brilliant. I mean, it's like how you reframe failure. Um, yeah. And I think this, you have to be human and say, well, we all fail multiple times a day at different things. So 
some things are more high stakes than others. But if if something does go wrong, then what's what's going to have the biggest impact on us turning the corner? Well, it's going to be working together to find a solution and looking after each other. Because if something's gone wrong, if someone is responsible individually, they're already going to feel awful about that. So having any kind of blame culture without the kind of prospect of learning and, and looking after and supporting that person is not going to yield any good good results. So I think... Um, if you see it going on within your team, you have to kind of call it out. And then that might be a one-to-one conversation afterwards with someone. Um, mm. But it also might be going to look after that person who has made a mistake or has um, done something that wasn't as good as it could have been and and kind of having a chat with them. But I often find even for that, even when you know you have to deliver the fact that they haven't done something as well as they could have done, I still find adopting more of a coaching approach to that conversation um, we'll, we'll get good gains because they're a, they're a trained professional adult. They, it won't take much reflection and kind of coaching for them to, to understand um, what's gone wrong and how they can and better it next time. And then obviously you, you, um, you centre it around what support they would need to, to grow from this experience and to, and to learn and to, and to do to even better next time. Um, so I think there's lots of things we can do and and some of that is public framing for the team about what we do. And, and the other thing that Amy Edmonton talks about is saying to everybody at the start of a project or a bit of a work or an academic year, hey, things will go wrong sometimes in this team and we will make mistakes mm. in this team. So when that happens, here's what we do and here's what we don't do um, because we're a group and we've got each other's backs and we're going to make sure we get the best out of each other. So when something when we do have a bad day as a team, here are some do's and here are some don'ts. Like, can we all agree on that now, you know? Yeah, it's like contracting again, isn't it? Yes, like contracting. It's just anticipating as well. It's being proactive and anticipating um, that there are good days and not so good days. No, that's that's really great. And it does link, actually, because I want to talk about professional learning in a moment. But before we talk about professional learning, something that's occurred to me as you've been speaking is the other section of the book where you actually give advice to leaders who do have to take someone aside. Um, How do you recommend those kinds of conversations are are the most fruitful and I suspect it's going to be to do with coaching but I wonder if you can expand on that a little bit dealing with the difficult person perhaps in your team yeah it's interesting isn't it and some of the most fascinating research in the culture code which is a book I you know everyone's probably listening has probably read or or heard me talk about before that's my favorite non-education kind of leadership book apart from Amy Edmondson's work is the culture code and there's in that book, Daniel Cord does quite a lot of uh, research into what is, I mean, it's not a great name, what they call bad apples. Mm, yes. They look at groups, um, even in this kind of like training centre, they plant a bad apple in loads of different groups um, and groups of people that have never met before. And the bad apple is basically instructed by the organisers to do things like, and these are all adults, do things like yawn aloud, look disinterested, put their head on the mm. desk, um allowed uh, question the purpose of the task they're doing and kind of mock it and it is incredible the impact that one person has even on the most motivated group of people mm-hmm. um and then and, and then the other teams have they get good apples planted on their team and they raise their game massively so it's fascinating the effect that someone who's really positive um and someone who's really negative can have on even the most motivated you know intelligent or whatever teams um so we have to deal with people who are maybe not 
contributing positively to the team's um, success and culture because otherwise it will fester and, and uh, those teams will, will lose out in the long term. And what we do is too valuable to allow something like that to, to carry on. Um, I'm a big believer, as you probably know, of just you know giving people a chance and giving people a chance mm-hmm. to shine and people a chance to talk about because ultimately no one comes to work to do a bad job. I mean, certainly I've never, I mean, I've met a few bad apples in my day, but I don't think I've ever met someone who actually comes to work to do a bad job. And if they do it, just as so not that, malicious. Yeah. 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 So there's clearly something if they, if they are a slightly toxic um, uh, part of the team, then there's something there that's motivating them to behave not in their best self. So I think to give them the best possible chance of turning that around, you've got to first question them and ask them and, and kind of coach them through how they feel about being part of the team do they feel like they belong do they feel like they're being utilized in the right way do they understand the the vision and the values of the team do they, do they agree with them would they like you know some sort of role in, and just try and work out what it is that they they do or don't mm. like about the current team climate but at the same and it time, might be that they've sorry to interrupt it might be that mm. they've been they've come from you know being in dysfunctional teams before and it's just a, a hangover from that as well yeah um lee hill writes about that a bit in my in the case study in my book actually that if you come into a team that have baggage of lots of change or leaders who never listened before or or whatever then some people have their guard up for quite a long time and they don't really want to know um, and be part of this new thing that you're doing because you might be gone in in a year or you might be Mm. or whatever um so that's that's how i'd approach it to begin with but but also we have to, like I said earlier, there's, there's a lot at stakes for our teams, you know, the education of children, the well-being and development of adults who are brilliant and needs to be nurtured as well. And ultimately, you have to start holding people to account if they are not taking the chances you're giving them to grow and be a part of the group together. And that has to be direct um, and it has to be. Again, it's a lot easier if your team has a very, very clear agreed upon vision and set of values because you can say things like, look, we've agreed as a team that some of the most important values and behaviours are dot, 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 dot. At the moment, sometimes I'm seeing things from you in meetings that kind of go a contrary to that. Like, How do you how do you mm. feel about that assessment? And and and, and then it, you can always link back to this very clear narrative about what this team is and how it behaves. Um and ultimately, then that, that gives them the decision whether they're going to behave like that or not. And, and sadly, sometimes you have to move people on if they're, if they're not up for that. Um, but I also find that the teams that have the cl- and schools that have the clearest narrative about who they are and what they do, when they're super clear about that all the time, that kind of encourages people, oh, I like this, I want to stick around or mm. you know what, that's not for me. And it's the teams that are a bit waffly and don't really have much of a narrative or a set of visions or values about them. They're the ones that tend to attract kind of those hangers on that don't really want to be there. Do, do you know what I mean? It's kind of Yeah. It, it's it's about the, the and I know that it's another book that, that I know you've read and I know that you love is um it, it's all about the the team story and the the us story isn't it i wonder if you could very briefly say something about creating that and, and why it's so important yeah i mean uh, i think what the book you're talking about is belonging by owen eastwood um mm, yeah which is awesome um and he he kind of you know goes back to the essence of what it means to be human to uh our ancestors who are living in these you know primitive groups without tv or electric or even books and the only thing they had to, to bond them together was stories about what made that group unique. Um, and he calls that creating your us story. 
um because people love being a part of something don't they we love being part of something that's bigger than just us we love belonging we love connection um so that's that's one of the best ways you can utilize you know energize a team around a message is like right what's our narrative what's our story what makes us unique as a group like what what is unique about us that means we're going to do amazing things together and really benefit the lives of these children in our care um and once you start to pull that out i mean it's diff it's a difficult message to resist for anybody even if they're feeling a little bit of friction towards the organization yeah no no that's it's so interesting and and you know i know because i've seen you speak before um at, at conferences and i know just how passionate you are about this so that's that's really brilliant to hear and it links really nicely onto the thing which i want to move us on to which is learning and you know i loved that that came that chapter about learning came straight after the well-being chapter because i think that there, there's research to show that that well-being actually is protected and boosted by professional learning because you know it can actually almost give us a, a bit of a, a barrier between us and our and the danger of burnout. And I wonder if you've noticed that. Do you think that that professional learning boosts people up in in a way that those who don't have it perhaps end up um, feeling a bit more burnt out in their professional lives? yeah immeasurably i mean i loved writing this chapter actually because um i don't write tons often about school cpd and like teaching and learning and stuff so it's really like a really nice chance to kind of dip into that um and to use jade pierce's kind of framework for learning um from her book as well which is really great by the way everyone should uh, should read that um yes yeah, so my my biggest one of the things i say when i talk about teams is that all teams do stuff they have a remit don't they like your team delivers this your team teaches this your team provides this service or whatever which is great but for me every single team in the world even if you you know don't offend anyone but like sell paper clips or whatever mm. um even if you're the paper clip seller every team should view one of their core remits as being learning and growing together as a group so whether you whether you teach amazing lessons or you make paper clips that might be your your main remit on paper but your other remit is is everyone in the room growing and learning together um i really believe that and, and like you said it was deliberately placed near well-being in the book because i think people feel great when they're learning um and i really love the model of self-determination theory which looks at people's um relatedness and autonomy and competence and all of those three things link to learning like you can those are the three primary needs that they um they identify in self-determination theory competence um, relatedness and, and autonomy and mm. by having a great learning culture or cpd culture or program for your team you basically tick massively all three of those primary needs that we really really need to thrive in our workplaces um i could go all day on this one to be fair Catherine. i just think <laughs> i just think i when i i love learning like yeah i think every teacher does um so you want to be you want to walk to that meeting with your coffee in your hand like i said earlier on feeling like oh god i've got to call those parents later on but this room i'm about to walk into wow we learn stuff in this room and i can't yeah. wait to go in there and do that together um and that's for me like the real power of, of, of a team no yeah that's that's really brilliant thank you for that answer um i just want to address actually um 
what it is that we're learning. Okay, because I support of really up-to-date CPD and evidence-informed practices and things like that, that just wasn't around when when people who are much older than me trained. Um, but, you know, there's there's an awful lot that's come out in, in research in the last decade that just simply wasn't around for some of our more experienced mm -hmm. teachers. And so you've got a room probably with a hugely diverse number of people with different experience and the inexperienced may be more research informed than the experienced and I wonder how would you go about um, supporting all of that diversity of learning needs in, in a team? Mm. Yeah because you, you're right if you do the uh, the ECF at the moment you are kind of flooded with research um stuff aren't you like uh, that program is is heavy <laughs> really great but very dense with with research i think what i've found is that um when teams do learning together it should always hinge around yeah so how can we apply this learning that we've just done together into our team processes or our development plan or whatever we're doing as a group our products so you know as well and i think the way that you can overcome the potential issue you just described is that uh, let's just say someone is really informed about this area of practice. They've presented to the group about this theory, about this bit of research they've just um, read or understood. And then the discussion turns to, right, so how could we really utilise this in our work, in our processes? And that's when maybe some other people in the team, perhaps as you describe more experience, who haven't heard about that piece of research, that thing before, can go, oh, well, actually, this sounds like a lot like this thing I've been doing for ages, mm. but I didn't know there was this we could try applying it by this and this and then you create this kind of these little discussion groups where you take something you've learned about some research and you put it into into practice um and and then it becomes part of what the team does so i think that's that's one way to get around it so it's not becoming like a knowledge show-off session um, yes. and again that's why that's why with my teams i have a rotor that, that everyone signs up to about every meeting we start with some team shared learning and there's a rotor and people sign up to what they want to present about um, a particular area of interest or knowledge they have that links to our area of work. Um, and then they can make it their own, that thing that they lead, and then they can facilitate the discussion with everybody else. So kind of um, that seems to work really, really nicely, that, that format. I really like the way that you framed that there, actually, because I, as you were speaking, I was just thinking, well, what what happens if we don't frame it so positively or if we leave these kind of I we don't acknowledge the experience of those experienced colleagues in the room or, or whatever. And I've heard as I've interviewed many teachers over the years, people talk about listening to a talk in CPD and they 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 come to believe that they are there to facilitate somebody else's promotion or something like that. And and, you know, there can be a view from experienced colleagues sometimes that, oh, I've seen this, it just was called something else. It's just got a new name now. It's just coming around mm -hmm. again mm -hmm. and switch off. And I think what you say there about this co-creation, and I think it's so important, and I think it really sits um, really strongly aside, aside the debriefs, actually, which is the bit where you say, right, We've learned this, but what do we do with it here? How do we decide if it's effective here? How are we going to make it work in our context? And for me, that's almost where the magic happens, that kind of commitment to structure a team to to, to do the co-creation bit rather than the, the, the learning bit. Do you see what I yeah. mean? 
Yeah, totally. I'll tell you where the next bit of magic happens. If you start your meeting by doing some resource or research sharing and discussion, and obviously then you apply it to the team's practice, that's such a great icebreaker for, if you've heard me talk about this before anybody, sorry, but if, if you, that's such a great icebreaker for 15 minutes later in the meeting when you might actually be having to discuss quite a difficult topic about your team's work because you started the meeting with this really passionate, engaged discussion of something a bit detached from your day-to-day -day work. And then later on, you might have to talk about, right, we do need to talk about now this area of our team's work where, and, and everyone will have a different emotional investment in that. So mm -hmm. starting meeting with knowledge sharing and, and kind of on a, on a rotor like that, it's a really great icebreaker for later on when you actually might have to discuss something closer to home that people have a bit more guarded views about because they've already practiced it once earlier on in the meeting and it was quite a joyful experience. So mm. uh, it kind of works in lots of different ways. No, that's that's really brilliant. Thank you. And I just want to um, say to our listeners as well, you know, we've got Sam here, we've got another 20 or so minutes and we've got a couple more things on, on our list that we were going to discuss. But I do want to welcome anybody who'd like to um, put a comment in the chat or, um, you know, maybe want to ask Sam a question. So if you want to consider doing that, please do so. Um, before we move on from talking about learning, Sam, I wonder if you could you talk about something called team learning as opposed to individual learning. And I wonder if you can tell us briefly what makes that so important as opposed to our personal learning. Yeah, that's um, that's a really great question. Um, so I think that obviously we've all got individual stuff we want to learn, but equally a team that is thinking carefully about its kind of current state of play will evaluate Hey, as a team, what are the, what's the knowledge and the expertise required to, to do a really good job? Like, what do we need to know as a group to really, really excel as a team? Okay, of those areas, which are our weaker areas? Which Where do we have gaps? Where do we want to grow and excel more in our knowledge and expertise of that thing? And then you start kind of codifying and auditing, right? This is what, this is what we know, this is what we want to know, this is what we need to know. And then you could almost divide up as a group, right? Okay, let's say... For the next three months, we use a one third of our meeting time for these three groups within our team to each explore one area of that learning that we've said we want as a group. And they have this kind of, you know, autonomous CPD project where they go away and research that area and bring it back to the group or, or whatever. So it's about making um, learning shared um, and understanding what's going to improve this team, not just the individuals, but what's going to improve this team um, through the lens of knowledge and expertise in enhancement. Um, so there's one thing that I kind of made up for the book, which was I called KRGs, which is like knowledge review grids, where mm. you can kind of like assess what they know, what they want to know, what they need to know, and then think about actions that come from that. Um, but yeah, I just, I just think um, that's when you create the energy, the shared energy where teams are learning stuff together. I mean, even recently, like I did a few AQA courses with, with a fellow um, English A-level teacher that I share a class with. Um, and we just ha had a whale of a time learning stuff together. And then we had to, um, over a couple of weeks of department time, prepare feedback to the other A-level English lit teachers. And I could have done that on my own. And I would have learned, you know, some stuff. But I, I learned more and was way more engaged by learning with someone else. And we bounced ideas off each other. Um, and yeah, so I just think those little team learning projects that contribute to something the team's mapped out in advance they want or need to know just really really powerful 
No, that, that's really brilliant. Thank you. Um, but of course, at the helm of all this, we've got the leader, the person who's leading the team. And you've got some really interesting things to say about leadership, particularly what it isn't. OK, because I, you do talk about sort of myths um, and uh, the, the kind of idea of the hero leader or that you have to have a particular innate personality trait in order to be an effective leader. Um, would you mind exploring your views on on the kind of the unhealthy leadership myths with us? Yeah, I'm, this is an area that I'm sure loads of people would disagree with me on. So, you know, fair enough. Um, I just think that and this comes back to sitting in leadership course after leadership course where I had to tip mm. my my leadership style or my leadership preferences or, or I mean, I just have no, I mean, again, sorry to talk out of turn for anyone that disagrees. I have no time for that whatsoever. Like, I don't think, um, I don't think there's a set, a particular set of like traits or personality styles that leaders, you know, should have or could have or, or anything like that. I think um, leadership is like trying to understand your craft as well as you can and constantly keep you know, improving understanding your craft because you've got to be really, really great at what you do. But it, and it's also about um, understanding how teams work and bringing people with you on that process. So yeah, I'm not a massive fan of like this kind of cult of personality style mm -hmm. of leadership where um, uh, the leader has X, Y, Z traits and that's what makes them successful. I think, um, I think it's way more um, human and collaborative than that. Um, and I absolutely do think leaders should set compelling direction is the, is the word that um, J. Richard Hackman, the team's researcher, calls it set compelling direction for the team. Um, but the team leader is just one person and there's a big group of people who are really, really willing to work their socks off to contribute to the team. And that's the bit we need to get right. How do we gel people together to work really, really well as a group? Um, and obviously I'm not dismissing, you know, all leadership principles. I, I'm not that, I'm not that silly, but um, yeah, there, there was just a point in my career. I was like, if I have to fill out another leadership style survey, I'm going to scream <laughs> and I'm going to run out the room. Um, and I'm going to quit this course <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, uh, I, I hear you. I hear you. I mean, do you think leadership needs a needs a makeover in general? Um, oh, that's a big question. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't know about that really. I think leadership courses need a makeover. That's that's one mm -hmm. of my takeaways, to be honest. Um, I think leadership courses need a bit of a makeover. Um, so yeah that's that's definitely something I, I mean even even recently someone someone emailed me and asked me if I could uh, come and work with their their team they're an accountancy firm um because they'd heard about my work and they'd just been emailed a flyer from a CPD expert from another from the accountancy sector and what they'd offered them over this two-day course and I was looking at it and think there was like a whole half day on personality styles um and then linked that to leadership and I was just thinking, well, it's interesting to do a personality test and find out what your personality might be. But how should, why should that take up 25% of a leadership course? And how is that going to mm. benefit the people in their actual work? And I think that's what I get, why I sound a little bit flippant and annoyed about it, is that if I ever provide training or CPD for someone, I want it to have an instant impact on something they can do in their job. And I'm not convinced that kind of theoretical stuff about 
leadership style or personality style will have an innate impact on their work the very next day um so that's probably why i sound a little bit nonchalant about the whole thing <laughs> no no i mean and that's, that's so interesting because i think that there's been an awful lot of that about hasn't there and uh, i do think we do need to look at this with fresh eyes and we do need to be taking some of these i mean i've held a held a view about education for a long time that the whole thing just needs picking up and being given a good shake <laughs> do you know what i mean because i think there's so many things which are embedded and would really benefit from from a fresh look and that co-creation and uh, just on that while i while i think of it I'd just like to remind listeners that we are um, very happy and lucky to be sponsored by John Cat, and there's so many wonderful CPD books out there that you could read and take back to your teams and share and have a brilliant time with um, co-creating that that application for the knowledge that you're going to use in your context. And if you did want to uh, have a look at the bookshop, we have a code at the moment which you can get a discount with, and that's J C T T R two three two four that's jctr two three two four uh for john cat bookshop and um you know please have a look and uh enhance your cpd with those those readings um catherine can i just say as well like just to kind of contextualize that i can see one of the listeners is, is chris baker who's awesome and you know chris helps co-chair the um the trust leaders forum with tracy goodyear and sam gibbs and that is essentially leadership cpd that they provide but they don't call it that they don't call it leadership cpd they they um but they provide very specific reflections and input about how you can lead things in your trust really well so it's, it's a very specific approach um mm. to uh to leadership and, and and that's exactly the kind of thing i'm talking about it's, it's essentially like a leadership platform um for sharing but they don't start every course with you know with these very 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 generic you know what's a great leader stuff they kind of go straight mm. in like, how can we lead our teams well in trust in this context and um so yeah that's that's just one example sorry yeah uh, no no, that's, to, no, to... no that's, a, that's a brilliant <laughs> shout thank you thank you and you know we've, we've got 12 minutes left as i say if anybody does want to chip in please do um put a note in the uh, comments or or ask to be ask some question that'd be really brilliant to hear from people um Catherine, want, you've got uh, Paul um, in the wings who I think wants to uh, ship oh, in. Oh, fabulous. Somewhere. I don't know what piqued his interest, but he's there and ready and waiting for you. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Catherine. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good to hear from you. you. Yeah, very good. Good to speak to you again. I thought wait, I thought tonight's show has been really good. It's been uh, interesting and pulled in a few memories for me because I've actually worked in a few schools where I've had different types of leaders and different types of teams as well and um what i was going to say was that it absolutely depends on how the leader goes across to their team but also <laughs> there's a bit of luck in it as well especially if you new going into a school it's finding those people who are going to be on your side who are the most influential in the school to begin with because we know every school's got like the bigger characters and they're usually the ones whose voices mm -hmm. are heard more so i found that at teachers who go in and find those people and get them on board that normally helps them but i've also seen it switch really quickly as well um particularly if a head teacher's got a, a particular team that she wants to or he wants to bring in and have it a particular way and even if it's just one person who then 
ends up leaving or going to a new place, it can absolutely change. I think you've saying this before. It can absolutely change the the mood in a school and how everyone thinks as well. And then what I've seen is that if that does happen and we go from kind of dictatorial kind of um, role that a head teacher has and everyone's kind of told to do this, that or the other. And then another head teacher comes in and it's completely different. Sometimes that can be a breath of fresh air and people can, can get on board with their ideas. Mm, that's such a good point, Paul. Um, sorry. Hi, by the way. Thanks for listening. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember when I when I first became head of English, uh, I mean, I did not know what I was doing at all. I knew nothing about how to how to kind of, you know, lead a team. And um, my line, there was basically in the team of eight, there was probably about three people out of the eight who were kind of on board <laughs> um, and wanted to put in the right direction. And my line manager at the time said, right, those two or three people are really natural allies for you. And when you're bringing up changes you want to make in the team that you think would be really good for the team, go and approach them before the meeting and, and get their views in advance. And then they can kind of support you with that along the way. And um, not only was that a good tactic initially, but once we had a bit more of a group consensus, the other people who were initially a bit more disengaged kind of just got on board because they could see there was some unity in the group for uh, after a long time of not having any and it was easier just to kind of conform to that and, and be part of this team that we were building so um so yeah really really agree with that kind of looking out for your allies and trying to foster that to really understand what's going on and getting a bit of an insight to begin yeah, with yeah and i've actually got a situation which is a bit sticky at the moment to be honest because I joined at the school I'm at, I joined two and a half years ago and it was, um, there was like three of us who were on, um, sort of supply contracts for, for the year. And then there were three of us going for two jobs and for a permanent. And so that it was, it was awkward and difficult. And then after one or two people have sort of moved on and sort of roles have shifted a little bit everything's kind of calmed down a little bit but i found myself sort of in the middle of sort of a dispute and kind of a, a possibility of things returning to what it used to be like because i've got um i've got a ta who is a one-to-one -one with an autistic child and also in my class i've got a one-to-one -one with someone who's got um violent tendencies because of uh, trauma in the past and we are only a small school and the space that we have is very limited so we actually yeah. have a situation where I've got both of these one-to-ones battling for this one room in school and mm. they don't get on and the children don't get on and because they're both in my class I'm kind of I'm not being asked to deal with it but I'm asked to I'm being asked to sort of um, assist in dealing with it. It can be really, it could be really awkward, really, how, uh, how I approach it. And to be fair, I'm not exactly sure how to approach it. Sam, I wonder, you know, in, in this situation where people, I, I think as Paul's describing, someone almost, you know, some some people are made leaders and some have leadership thrust upon them, I think is to paraphrase uh, Shakespeare there. What would you what would you advise to people who find themselves taking a de facto leadership um, situ uh, position, perhaps? 
Yeah, it's interesting just listening to Paul's um, Paul's situation there. I think for me, it's always about um, minimising the occasions where those things happen um, without warning and to to sit down in a rational, cold light of day uh, together before the issue has cropped up and go, right, how are we going to row to this or do something to make sure we don't run into each other midday um, trying to arrange something in advance. It's always proactive, always looking forward and go, right, let's say, for example, something does go wrong one day, we both clash in this room, what would we do next and kind of almost map out potential scenarios from there. Um, and yeah, to answer your your question as well, Catherine, guys, that one's probably <laughs> probably too long for what we've got time we've got left. Um, but I would love to talk about that more. <laughs> um, write another book, Sam. Write another book yeah. just about that. Yeah, actually, Chris is going to help me write a trust book at some point. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, it's, it's, we, we are very nearly out of time and it's been so absolutely fascinating. And I know that um, it says Mr. D. Lester, I think that's Darren, is it? Um, and you've said something about looking at other industries and other industry behaviours. And I know that we've we've talked briefly about that. Um, but I, I just want to sort of finish off with a scenario. OK, let's suppose you're a teacher um, who's going for an interview to step up into a leadership role and you hold a belief that change takes time yes you set your vision out early yes you get to know your teams and you know if if they're saying look we need someone to come in and make some tough calls and deal with some you know subpar teaching very quickly um are, are you tough enough to do it we want rapid changes but but you very much believe in a more constructive and collaborative approach how does somebody trying to break into a leadership role more formally kind of get around that that question yeah i mean i think um it would be a difficult thing to voice if you were if you were junior to these people saying that but actually you, you can't um they're they're sort of really stitching you up as a bit of a scapegoat there because they're essentially saying hey we're going to put you in this leadership position you can get rid of loads of people um and deal with the fallout um because how how much is anyone going to trust a brand new leader that gets promoted and immediately has to do some really you know getting the hands dirty things before they've had a chance to set out their stall and create a good culture um, I think it speaks quite poorly of those those leaders that have asked that person to do that. Um, mm. They should be doing that now and and helping to create future success for the next team leader rather than um, putting it all on their shoulders. So um, I'd be very wary of taking up a leadership position with a, a leader to above me saying things like that to me, um, unless they were saying, look, we're going to work with you to help um, to help sort out a few difficult situations. Um, but we also want you to have time to create the culture you need because this team currently doesn't have that. But alarm bells would be ringing for me if someone gave me that as my main objective <laughs> coming into the team. I'd be thinking, right, this doesn't sound like a very long term plan for growth. Um, yeah. A short term blitz and it will uh, destroy trust in me as, as the new team leader at the same time. So, um, yeah, I'd, red I'd be flags. Red flags about their integrity and also their, their capacity to get the job done themselves if they're asking you to do that mm -hmm. as a new leader of a team. Yeah, no, you know, I'm, I'm making a, a gross, um, you know, oversimplification or a characterization um, of that but yeah I just wanted to, to hear your views on that and we've had a question in the chat um, from Hannah hi Hannah um, 
you said that there's a lot of similarities, um, Sam, to, to the leadership that you've experienced in schools and sports team. Hannah has asked, which teams do you most admire and how has how it's led? And um, which do you think has the most to offer on the educational leadership front, if that's different at all? Yeah, sports leadership is actually quite difficult to translate to um to R1 because and I've been to work with the UEFA Pro license a couple of times now who that so like if you if you want to be a manager in the Premier League um, football manager you have to you do your UEFA C license B license A license Pro license um, and it's a really rigorous entrance program to get onto the Pro license but that's the badge you need to so I've worked with them a couple of times at St George's Park um, and it's really fascinating. I mean, one thing that they've they've actually nailed on the on the in England, like when you go to the England headquarters, is they've actually worked with Owen Eastwood, who I quoted earlier on. They've got these amazing murals going down this long corridor about who we are, it's our vision, it's our values, um, and they've got you know the youth teams, um, the men's team, the women's team. They've got everybody along this corridor, and you can really feel a sense of purpose. Um, so I think the what they're quite good at is is obviously they've got a lot of money, but they're quite good at creating narratives and stories. I find at least teams like really compelling narratives about who they are and what they're doing. Um, one thing I found about sports teams that they're less good at is um, they're still a little bit behind us when it comes to things like debriefing and evaluation. There's still quite a lot of that kind of blame culture um, sort of because uh, stuff that's going on and. So yeah, so individual teams, it's hard to it's hard to pinpoint um, individual teams, but I always talk about again in the culture code, there's quite a lot of anecdotes in there about sports teams, um, through from basketball and the NFL as well. Um, and and they, and they and they each have their own kind of strengths and weaknesses. But I think genuinely sports teams are great at that identity and narrative. Um, mm. and they they do what I think is important. It's not the be on end all, but they're really great at creating a strong visual presence for that. You know, they hire the best graphics people. And I'm a really big believer, actually, probably spend more more money at school than I should do on like making things look good. Because I think if you've invested a lot of time into creating a narrative and a vision, you want it to be so visually um, kind of compelling that it draws people in to keep seeking out and understanding that even more. So sports seems to be quite good at that, but not always so good at the um the the people management and evaluation style which can still be quite blame blame culture sort mm. of no that that's brilliant thank you so much and we have come to the end of our show tonight and uh thank you so much to to sam it's been absolutely fascinating i know that you could talk about this uh all day and all night and uh please do come back and talk to us again because it's absolutely brilliant um that is the Power of Teams by Sam Chrome, How to Create and Lead Thriving School Teams, published by John Cat. And uh, just to shout out that if you did want to get the um, discount that we have by, uh, by them very brilliantly sponsoring us, the, the code for that is JCTTR2324. That's JCTTR2324. And uh, it's been absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. Um, please do visit teachersradio.org to uh, download all kinds of other subjects, fascinating teaching discussions um, from the website. And, and uh, please do join us again. And thanks again, Sam. You've been brilliant. 
Thanks, Catherine. And um, if anyone doesn't fancy buying the book, just ping me a message on Twitter and I'll, we can just chat there. You don't have to buy the book to, to have a conversation. So, um, yeah, I look forward to hearing from you. And, and thanks, Catherine, for all the research you did on the interview as well. It was amazing. <laughs> no, thank you. It's been really brilliant. I hope to see you again very soon. Absolutely. Yeah. Take care. Take care. Yeah, this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.